Good morning. How are you ladies this morning? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, thank you so much, music team. It's like you read my notes. <clears throat> Sorry. That last verse of Be Thou My Vision is just such a beautiful picture of what we're going to get to study today in the second half of Philippians chapter 3. Um, so just to kind of back up and remind you how Philippians 3 has, or how the book of Philippians has unfolded for us this year, um, Paul began by writing about his love and his care for the Philippians, and then he updated them with how he was doing while he was under house arrest in Rome. He exhorted them to be selfless like Christ was, and then launched into a really profound description of Christ's incarnation and exaltation. Then at the end of chapter 2, he encouraged them towards sanctification, and he encouraged them with the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Then in the first half of chapter 3, which we looked at in January, he reminded them to watch out for false teachers who teach that righteousness could be obtained anywhere except in Christ. And then he shared his own testimony of trying to gain his own righteousness and how now he counts all of those, oh, thank you, <laughs> all of those efforts to be lost so that he can know Christ. Um, and our study guide, as we've studied together, has focused on the theme of joy in Philippians. So if I asked you right now in our study, how does Paul find joy, and how can we find joy, Philippians has presented us with several answers, right? But all those answers can ultimately be boiled down to one answer. If you had to say, where does Paul find joy, where can we find joy in one word, that word would be Christ. Right? If you've caught anything from the first two and a half chapters of Philippians, I pray that you've caught this, that Christ is everything. You know, in every chapter, Paul's given us some really punchy statements, um, some of the most memorable in the New Testament about how a Christian views Christ. In chapter 1, verse 21, he said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In chapter 2, verse 5, he said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he said, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So loving Christ, fellowshipping with Christ's people, having Christ's attitude, obeying Christ, knowing Christ, this is where we can find joy. And now in the second half of Philippians chapter 3, Paul is going to turn to tell us that there's another key to finding joy, but it's something that we're waiting for. And the next key to finding true joy is our sure confidence that someday we'll be in heaven with Christ and we'll finally be like Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So it begs the question, how can we have joy because of something that we don't have yet? And that's what we're going to learn together today. So if you'll open with me, let's read Philippians 3, 12 through 21 together. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news that this life is not everything and that we have a future. We have a citizenship. We have a savior. We have glorified bodies that we are pressing on toward. And I pray that today's passage will encourage and strengthen our hearts for our race right now as we keep our eyes on the finish line. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, I promise you I don't go cherry-picking all the Bible passages that use distance running as an analogy for the Christian life, Um, but Philippians 3 is another one of those passages, so you get more running stories today. Um, There are actually several passages in the Bible that describe the Christian life as a long-running race. When you see words like run, endure, persevere, press on, they all call up the image of a runner who's exerting herself to the limit of her ability to keep going, who doesn't run down the block and quit, but who runs for a long distance, who keeps going not just when it feels good, um, but also when it's hard and painful. In Hebrews 12.1, the writer describes it like this, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So in today's passage, just like in Hebrews 12.1, we're going to see that we're not just runners on a training run. We're not on a treadmill. We're runners in a race. This isn't for kicks. It isn't a practice. There's a course and a finish line and a prize. Um, so I love cheering for runners at cross-country meets and road races. It's super fun. You know, anyone who has done the effort to train and then wake up early and put on short shorts and make their body hurt just for the fun of it is already a winner in my book. (laughs) Um, And when you're out cheering for a runner, there's a lot of ways you can tell how they're doing. You can look at their stride. You can look at the grimace on their face or the lack of a grimace on their face. You can listen to how quickly they're breathing. Um, But another gauge of how a runner is doing on a race course is where their eyes are. When a runner is feeling good, when they're doing well, or when they're at least feeling gritty, their eyes are up several yards ahead. When you see a runner who's going along looking at their feet, you know, here's someone who's in trouble. And that's why you'll often hear coaches come up alongside a race course and yell at their runners, get your eyes up. Um, We've made this into a saying in English. We tell people, keep your eyes on the prize, right? We use that saying outside of the context of running to tell people, you need to focus on what really matters. There's a goal here and you need to put your eyes on that goal. Um, We say it to someone who's had their focus pulled away from the goal to remind them, get your eyes on the prize. And isn't that a good description of us when we're not joyful? We need this passage of scripture to come alongside us and while we're running our race, yell at us like a coach, get your eyes up. And so that's what Philippians 3 is going to do for us today. Paul tells the Philippians that his eyes are on the prize and then he challenges them to keep their eyes on the prize as well. I'm going to give you just a really simple outline. In verses 12 through 16, Paul's going to explain how to think or the aim of our race. And then in verses 17 through 21, um, how to walk or what is the path of our race. 
So how to think, how to walk, or what's the aim of our race and what's the path of our race. But what's interesting is Paul kind of wraps his instruction with the same idea at the beginning and end, kind of like a pair of parentheses. He starts in um, verse 12 saying, I'm headed for the resurrection, so here's how I want you to think. And then he said, and here's how I want you to walk, because we're headed to heaven. So you kind of get heaven, how to think, how to walk, and heaven again. Um, But you'll notice, as we start in verse 12, we don't actually have the word heaven there at all. Um, The grammar in verses 12 through 14 don't actually go linearly. So forgive me while I hop around just a little bit in those verses. But it's actually a really beautiful paragraph because Paul uses a lot of repetition and wordplay to help drive his point home. So you see, instead of reading heaven in verse 12, we actually have a pronoun, the word it. And it's in italics, which means it's not even there in Greek. Um, Verse 12 is really a continuation of verse 11. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you see a pronoun like it, not that I have already obtained it, what you should do is you should go backwards to find out what is it? What is this thing that he hasn't already obtained? And so we're going to actually have to back up two verses to verse 10. If you remember from last month, um, Paul was talking about why he'd left his perfect pedigree and all of his hard-earned self-righteousness behind. And so what was his goal in giving all of that up? He starts to explain it in verse 10. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what was his goal? What was his purpose for giving everything up? He gave it all up so that he could know Christ and that in knowing Christ, he could get eternal life. He could attain to the resurrection from the dead. In fact, if you go to the end of verse 12, Paul says that he wants to lay hold of this thing, of the resurrection from the dead. Um, But his desire to lay hold of it is not the only thing going on here. Christ laid hold of Paul for that very reason. Um, If I could say the second half of verse 12 really simply, where it says, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is, Christ went and got me so that I could go get eternal life. Um, And isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? Have you ever thought that Christ went and laid hold of you? He took possession of you. He snatched you out of the kingdom of darkness. Um, He went after you when you were that one runaway sheep. And why did he do that? He went and laid hold of you so that you could lay hold of eternal life. We know that Jesus didn't just save you to take you to heaven, right? He has plans for you here. We spent all weekend learning about his plans for you here. He plans to make you holy. Um, Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. But Philippians 3.12 is clear that he did save you so that you can have the resurrection from the dead. Isn't that a picture of Christ's love for us? Um, That his goal is our good and our glorification, not just his own. It makes me think of Ephesians 2.7, where it says that God saved us so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when we're discouraged, when our eyes are on our feet while we're running, um, we need to remember that Jesus went and laid hold of us 
so that we could lay hold of an eternity of grace and kindness that he has planned to give to us. Isn't that amazing? But in verse 12, Paul reminds the Philippians and us that he hasn't got it yet. He's not resurrected yet. That word that's translated perfect in the NAS has the idea of being complete or fulfilled or finished. Paul isn't completed yet. That finish line in his race is still a ways off. So that being the case, what does Paul do? If you look in verse 13, oh, I'm sorry, no, it's in the middle of verse 12. He says, I press on. Now, this word is actually a really strong Greek word. Um, It is often translated persecute in our New Testament. It means to chase something down or hotly pursue it, just like Paul was chasing down Christians um, before his conversion. So that is what Paul is doing. He's pressing on, he's chasing or hotly pursuing the finish line. And then in verse 13, he kind of repeats the same idea. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He hasn't got it yet. But one thing I do, he says. But before he tells us what one thing he does, he's going to tell us what he does while he does that thing. Um, While he's in his race, what is he thinking about and where are his eyes? He says here in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. His eyes are not on what is behind, either. His eyes are up. He's reaching forward to what lies ahead. Um, You know, in a running race, looking back is just as bad as looking at your feet. Um, Worst case scenario, you'll trip and fall because you're not looking where you're going. Um, Best case scenario, you might break your stride and you'll lose ground to the runner running next to you. If you watch the Olympics this summer, you'll see these people who have trained all their life and they don't look back at the other people. You'll see like a little sideways glance like that to to scout out what's going on, but you don't see people turn their head all the way back. You don't do that. Um, And so here from Paul, we have some pretty practical advice on how to think while we are in our race of life. You know, it's sometimes tempting to look back at what we've done well and to rest on our laurels. Sometimes it's tempting to look back at where we failed, and it makes us want to drop out of the race in despair, but neither of these are going to help us run well. We know from the rest of scripture that Paul is not saying to just ignore the past, right? We're often called in scripture to remember. We're supposed to remember good things so that we can trust and thank God. And we're supposed to remember bad things so that we don't make the same mistakes that others have made or that we have made. So Paul's not saying to just forget your sin without repenting. Um, He's not saying to never examine yourself. He's not saying don't remember what God has done or what you've done well. But none of those things are the goal. Keeping our heads turned backward will not help us run our race toward heaven well. You know, if you had to make tally marks about the number of times you thought about the past today, like since you woke up, and the number of times you thought about heaven, which side would have more tally marks? Um, This is just a really simple application. We need to get those tally marks in line with Philippians 3.13. Forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. And there's a famous quote in a letter by um, Robert and Chain where he said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And we could add from our text here, for every look backwards, take 10 looks forward to heaven. So, but all of verse 13 was a description of that main verb that we're still trying to get to in verse 14. So Paul has not already got the, to the finish line He knows that's what Christ laid hold of him for. He's forgetting what lies behind. He reaches forward to what lies ahead, and what does he do? 
says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is that same verb from verse 12, the one that's often translated persecute. He's hotly pursuing that goal. The metaphor of a running race reminds us that this is strenuous. We have to endure, and it's not always going to be easy or fun or feel good, but there's a finish line and a prize. You see those words that he presses on toward the goal for the prize. And that is where we put our eyes. Um, Several years later, near the end of his life, Paul returns to this analogy of a race with a finish line and a prize when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We each have a course to run that is our life, Um, and at the finish line, everyone who has loved Christ and longed to see Christ will receive a prize. And here in our text, Paul calls the prize the upward call of God. You know, we often talk about God's call at the beginning of salvation, right? Um, Like in 2 Timothy 1.9 where it says, he saved us and called us with a holy calling. We talk in theology about the effectual call But here, we see that God's call starts with the end in mind. Just like Christ laid hold of us so that we could lay hold of eternal life, God ultimately calls us to heaven. Salvation is the beginning of his call, and he's going to finish taking us all the way there. So if we were to stop and summarize at this point, how is Paul thinking, right? How is he teaching us to think? He's thinking about Christ and Christ's purpose in saving us, He's thinking about eternity and that resurrection from the dead. He's not dwelling on the past. He's conceiving of life as a a distance running race, and he has his eyes on the finish line and the prize. And since his eyes are up on the prize, he's able to run well. He's able to press on. So then in verse 15, he encourages the Philippians to have the same attitude that he does. He writes... Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. The word perfect here has the sense of being mature or fully grown. Um, Not complete, like in verse, not the finish line, but being grown up, being an adult. Um, And the second half of the verse is just a little bit cryptic. It's a little bit hard to understand what Paul is getting at here. But it actually shows a couple of really important ways that Paul is thinking about his fellow race runners, the Philippians, as he writes to them. Do you remember in chapter 1, verse 6, where he said that he was confident that God would complete the work that he began in the Philippians? Do you remember when he wrote to them um, in chapter 2, verse 13, that he knew that God was at work in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure? One commentator writing about the second half of this verse said, the emphasis in this sentence is not on any anticipated disagreement they might have with him, but on God's continuing to work among them. Their mutual friendship and mutual trust is so secure that Paul can simply leave it in God's hands to reveal to them whatever further understanding they may need. You know, we know from how he started this chapter that he's not saying, yeah, you know, follow the legalists, that's going to be okay, and I'll just wait for God to reveal that to you. No, he said, beware. 
Um, but when there is an issue of conscience or an issue of spiritual growth where he sees that the Philippian believers need to grow, but they're just not there yet, because of his confidence in God's work in their life, he can rest and leave their spiritual growth to God. Isn't that reassuring? You know, when they don't quite have the attitude that Paul's exhorting them to have, what he does is wait in peace, knowing that God is at work in their hearts. Even Paul was not responsible to sanctify other believers. So um, when you're struggling in a relationship with a fellow believer, or you see someone who you're like, oh, I wish they would have a different attitude, just kind of like Paul says here, I would encourage you to remind yourself from Philippians 1.6 that you can be confident that God will complete his work in them. Um, remind yourself that God is at work in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then like Paul, you can pray that God would reveal any wrong attitudes, um, both to yourself, to you, and to this other person who you're concerned about. Um, it is always possible that if there's two different attitudes, either one of you could be the one who needs to have something revealed to you from the Lord. Um, so, yes, he has this attitude of peace, of knowing that God is the one who's going to grow the Philippians as they're on this race toward heaven. However, in verse 16, he says, that being the case, while I'm at peace letting God be the one who sanctifies you, let's not go backwards. He says, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. While we're all in different places in our race toward heaven, and we're all running different paces, forward progress is the goal here. Um, just like we don't look back, we also don't move backwards. It would be really foolish in a distance running race to turn around and run the wrong direction. Um, I like the way that Tom describes this when he talks about sanctification. It's not that you're always getting better every moment. There's going to be, you know, if you draw a graph, there will be some dips and bumps in your sanctification, but the trajectory line is upward, right? So we're not going backwards and becoming less like Jesus in our race, but always moving forward. So as he wraps up this session, with our eyes on the prize, how do we think? We think about eternal life, and we pursue it like a runner in a race. We keep our eyes on it. We remember that's why God called us, that's why Christ laid hold of us, and we don't look back. We trust God with the sanctification of our fellow race runners, and our goal is forward motion until we get to heaven. We press on. So that's that first section of how we're thinking or what the aim of our race is. And now we're going to look in the second half here um, of what our path is or how we should walk. Paul actually switches metaphors here from a running race to walking, which that might be good news, right? Um, he goes from the metaphor of a race to the metaphor of a path um, or a pattern. He uses those words a couple of times. So now that we know how to think, he's going to tell us how to walk. Now that we know the aim of our race, he's going to tell us what path we should be racing on. And he encourages us to pick the right path or the right pattern. In verse 17, we're going to see what the right path is. And then in verses 18 or 19, the wrong path or the wrong pattern. So I do have one more running story, though. Um, in a road race or a cross-country race, usually there's someone out leading the race, and because it's hard to find someone who can run faster than the person who's going to win the race, they're often on a bicycle or a golf cart or a, or a motor motorcycle. Have you seen this before? Um, and that's so the lead runner isn't out there making up their own course or getting lost. And so similarly, God hasn't left us wondering what course it is we're supposed to be running on. 
He's given us his word as a course map, right? But we can also cheerfully acknowledge that none of us here is the lead runner. Um, Praise be to God, he's given us many examples to follow so that we know how to run, or in the words of this section, how to walk. I got to watch my brother run a marathon in December, and right at the front of the race, there aren't a lot of runners. Like, they're really far spaced out. And so you understand why they need that lead bicycle. But then, once you get to, like, the bulk of the race, there's no way you could go off course because it's just like this slew of runners. You know, there's never a gap, just lots of people. So once that pace, once that course is set, you can know where to follow. It's a really neat picture that Paul gives us here. So in verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So notice that Paul calls the Philippians to look at two different examples or patterns, his and then some people that they can observe who walk the same way. So there are people who you can follow on the right path who are not with you. When Paul's writing this letter, he's hundreds of miles away from the Philippian believers, and some of the people reading this letter may have never met him in person. Um, But he tells them, follow me, follow my example. And he's been giving them that example this entire letter. In fact, he's going to wrap up the exhortation section of the letter in verse 9 by saying, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So the whole point of this is, guys, follow my example. We've seen in this short letter that Paul cared about Christ and Christ's people and the gospel more than he cared about Paul's reputation or Paul's comfort or even Paul's life. He valued Christ more than any good thing he had ever accomplished. And the Philippian believers and we can find enough of an example just in the words of this letter the church, to the church at Philippi that would mark out a path for us to walk, couldn't we? And so, great saints like Paul that we can read about in God's word and even in the pages of history can be our example. They can be that runner that's way up ahead who's marking out the course for us. It's the point of Hebrews chapter 11, that whole chapter before chapter 12, verse 1, where it tells us to run our race. The author of Hebrews says, do you want to know what it looks like to live a life of faith? Well, let me tell you. There was Abel, and there was Enoch, and there was Abraham, and there was Sarah, and he spends 40 verses telling you all these examples that you could follow. Um, Past that, have you ever been encouraged by reading about other believers um, after the time of Scripture? Missionary biographies or memoirs of saints who've suffered and worked hard for the gospel. They can be a kind of lead runner for us or someone who's up further ahead on that course, making sure we know where to go. They can be an example of the path that we should follow. But then notice that Paul also encourages the Philippians to observe those who walk in this same pattern. There are believers in Philippi who are walking on the right path. They're another copy of the same pattern. It's kind of like an ink stamp, if you imagine. Uh, Paul takes an ink stamp and goes, bam, bam, bam. And every imprint looks pretty similar, right? Um, So find those people who are an imprint of Paul's stamp and follow them. God is so good not just to give us saints in his word, whose example we can follow, not just saints in history who we can follow, but saints in our own lives who we can follow. You know, there are people in this room, there are people in your small group, people in your Sunday school class, people who serve in the same ministry that you do, who are a pattern that you want to imitate. And Paul would be the first to tell you that he was not a perfect pattern, that you should follow him only as he follows Christ. 
So would Abraham and Sarah, and the missionaries whose biographies you read, and the sweet sisters here at Countryside. None of us will ever be a perfect pattern, but look at that runner further along the course and follow them as long as they're following the lead bike. You know, implicit in this verse is also a challenge that we should be a person who can be followed, right? If Christ is the leader and Paul's following him, and someone at church is following Paul, and you're following that person, guess what? Someone else can follow you. So that's how we walk. We walk following Paul's example and the example of people who are walking in that same pattern. And we walk so that we could say, follow me while I follow Christ. And so that's the right pattern in chapter 3, verse 17. But then in verse 18 and 19, we get the wrong path or the wrong pattern that we could be tempted to follow. It says, for many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So who are these people who are rocking the wrong way? Um, there wasn't a lot. We don't know exactly who they are or what was going on around Philippi at the time to say definitively these are who these people are. But it is interesting to note a couple of things. First, that the Philippians would be tempted to follow them. So it's probable that they are professing believers, at least. The Philippians thought, here's a good example. I should follow them. Um, second, Paul says that he's weeping over them. Um, back in verse 2, when he was warning them about the false teachers who were teaching legalism, the Judaizers, he wasn't weeping. He was calling them some pretty strong names. Um, and so a lot of people who I read tend to think that it's not the same people. He's not talking about false teachers here. Um, they may even say the right things, these people who are walking wrong. They may even be associated with the church, either the church at Philippi or the church outside of Philippi, but their walk is at odds with the cross of Christ. In verse 19, we get four descriptions of them. Their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, their glory is in their shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. So notice that Paul isn't warning the Philippians from following them because what they're saying or because of what they're teaching. He's warning them because of what they're doing. What these people are doing is the problem. And you know, they're um, controlled by their desires, they're proud of their sin, and they're all about what's going on here on earth. And I'm really thankful that Paul warned the Philippians to observe carefully how people walk and to be sure to follow the ones who walk well. Because I fear that sometimes we check what people say and as long as they say the right thing, we feel free to follow them. But that's dangerous. You know, Matthew Henry writing on this passage said, their walk is a surer evidence what they are than their profession. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Um, Jesus said this really clearly. Would you turn with me back to Matthew chapter 7? <clears throat> Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus said, So then, this is chapter 7, verse 20, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So when you're deciding who to follow, 
when you're deciding how to walk, a right profession is not enough. Someone saying the right things is not enough. You need to check that the one you want to follow is walking like Christ, is walking like Paul, and like all the other imprints from that same stamp. But notice back in Philippians 3, that last description of these bad walkers, it says they set their minds on earthly things. Paul's coming back to our analogy here. When these guys are running, where are their eyes? Their eyes are on their feet, right? They're looking here, down here, not on eternity. This is what matters. Their eyes are not on the prize. That's kind of a downer for ending this passage. Um, So thankfully, Paul wraps it back up with those parentheses. Remember how I told you he would say, I'm headed to heaven, here's how to think, here's how to walk, and now let's remember heaven again. And that's what he's going to do for us here. He says, this is not us. This is not you, Philippian believers. Because why? Because our eyes are on the prize. In verses 20 through 21, he says, for our citizenship, in contrast to these people who set their mind on earthly things, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. So while Paul's been talking about the resurrection from the dead and the goal and the prize throughout this passage, here he sits down and really fleshes out for us what it is we're looking forward to. What is that finish line? What is that prize? What is it that gives us joy even though we don't have it yet? Um, He describes our eternity with three wonderful hopes. He tells us that we're looking for a home and a savior and a glorified body. But before we look at those three in detail, I want to remind you just a little bit of the historical context because it makes what Paul says here just a little bit richer. If you recall, um, Philippi was a Roman colony, which means that the Philippians possessed Roman citizenship, which was really coveted in that day and age. That conferred on someone all kinds of rights and privileges that others didn't have. Um, I think we tend to think of, you know, like, oh, the Romans, and like this ancient history kind of thing. But this was the height of civilization, and this was kind of the beginning of the concept of human rights. And um, you've heard Tom talk about the Pax Romana. There was a, a type of widespread peace and wise governance that had not existed up until this time that was available through the Roman Empire. Um, and so... The privileges of being a Roman citizen were kind of a big deal, and the Philippians had that. Um, And those privileges were thought to come to you through the Roman emperor. He was often called the savior or the deliverer. But if you'll also recall from the historical context, when Philippians was written, we're only a few years out from the persecution of Christians under Nero beginning, less than a decade. And so it would seem from Paul's letter to the Philippians that he's gently preparing them for the day when they will suffer for their faith. He's already remarked on this um, in the the book. Do you remember in chapter 1, verse 29, where he said, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Or then in 3.10, Paul told them that he wanted to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. And we know from this side of history that the Philippians, who'd enjoyed rights and prosperity flowing to them through the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor, would soon find that empire and emperor to be a source of their suffering rather than a source of safety. 
And so when Paul says to them, our citizenship is in heaven, he's bringing to their mind their Roman citizenship and reminding them that in Christ, they have a surer, safer home, even that they ha- than they have as Roman citizens. And when he says, we eagerly wait for a savior, that Greek word savior was often applied to the Roman emperor. Um, the emperor delivered you from warfare, from having your rights trampled on, from economic disaster, but our savior will deliver us from every evil deed. So part of keeping your eyes on the prize is remembering that no empire and no human being will ever provide the kind of citizenship and deliverance that Christ can provide. So don't look to earth to give you what only heaven can. It's kind of what Paul is saying in in the historical context to the Philippians here. Um, And these are good words for us, I think, too, right? In, In an election year, The fact that the Roman Empire may turn and become a source of suffering instead of deliverance for the Philippians is not to fret. The the reaction is not to fret. The reaction is to put your eyes on the prize. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so Paul does that now by reminding the Philippians of these three hopes that they have in the future. And the first is a home. Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven. You know, we are expats right now. This isn't home. Our citizenship is in heaven. You know, I love to travel. In fact, many of my favorite memories come from times that I've spent not here. Um, (laughs) But even during my happiest days in other cities or states or countries, my mind often turns toward home. Have you all experienced the same thing? Sometimes it's simple things that take my mind back, like missing my bed or my pillow. Sometimes it's the feeling of not fitting in or the mental exhaustion of having to function in a new language or the way a certain food just doesn't taste quite right. Um, And that makes me think of home. One time, um, my family, when I was little, we returned from a long road trip and a sibling of mine was heard from the bathroom, my mom's gonna laugh now, saying, oh, it's good to sit on your own toilet again. (laughs) Um, and, and that's a silly example, but when you're not home, things just aren't quite right, are they? Um, and Christian, this is you. You're a traveler. You're a foreigner. The, the Bible uses the term stranger and alien here on this earth. You know, and I'm convinced that right expectations in this area would fix a lot of our joylessness. You know, we have unrealistic expectations that this world will be home, that here the beds and pillows and toilets will all be right, that we'll fit in. Um, And we spend all our time and mental energy on this world and the things that are here. And then when we don't feel at home, we're like, ah, the solution is I need to spend some more time and energy making this feel more like home. Um, I think, too, that the unparalleled prosperity and peace that we are getting to experience, it's a blessing from the Lord, but it can be a trap that pulls our mind off of our real home in heaven and makes earth look pretty good. So don't fall for that trap. And when suffering comes, when you're uncomfortable for whatever reason, whether it's a little annoyance or a great trial, let it remind you that this is not home. You're a visitor with a foreign passport. Home is waiting for you in heaven, and there it will all be right. You can deal with a different bed or a different toilet here for a few days or weeks or months or years because certainly you will go home one day. Jesus told his disciples In John 14, 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, not only is heaven our home in a general sense, like Texas is my home, 
Um, but Jesus describes it here when he talks to his disciples as individual dwelling places that he's preparing for us. So have you ever pondered what it's going to be like to truly be at home in heaven forever? Um, if you find yourself struggling to press on, get your eyes up on this prize. You have an eternal home in heaven where you will truly belong, where you'll truly be at rest, where you'll truly be safe, and you'll truly be loved. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? Isn't that enough of a prize to press on toward? But that's just one of our three. There's more. So not only do we have a home in heaven, but we have a savior in heaven. Paul says next, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is right now in heaven, just like he told his disciples in John 14. And just like he told his disciples in John 14, he's coming again. For Paul, who said repeatedly in this letter that he would lose absolutely everything to gain Christ and to know Christ better, this is the greatest fulfillment of his greatest longing. You know, we're waiting not just for heaven and a home, but for the person of Jesus Christ. And you know, if the thought of finally seeing Jesus and being with Jesus doesn't fire you up, you need to ask yourself if you truly love him as you should. Because when we love someone and then we're away from them, we long for them. Even more than we long for a place, right? If you're traveling and the people you love best are with you, you don't miss home as much. So Philippians 3 says we eagerly wait for him. We're craning our necks and straining our eyes for the day that he comes back. You know, sometimes in the day-to-day -day of life, as we do the next thing, it's easy to put our eyes on our feet and lose sight of this. We act like only the next steps in front of us are real, and Jesus coming back is some distant pipe dream. I catch myself doing that, and I wonder if you do as well, but it's not a distant pipe dream. You can plan on Jesus coming back even more surely than the summer camp plans and the summer vacation plans that you're making right now. You can plan on Jesus coming back more surely than you can plan that you're going to get your Christmas tree out of the garage in November 2024. We act like those things are real and him coming back is not, but it's real. Praise the Lord, he's coming back and we need to get our eyes on that prize and eagerly wait for our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? We have a home and a savior that's the prize at the finish line. But there's one more good thing that we're waiting for, and that's in verse 21. It says, he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. When Jesus comes back to take us to our true home, he's gonna transform our bodies to match his bodies. And actually, Paul's making a terrific play on words here. It's super cool. Do you remember in chapter 2, verse 7, where when Paul was talking about the incarnation, he said Christ took on the form of a bondservant, and he was made in the likeness of man? So that word that Christ took on the form of a bondservant gets a prefix put on it, and that's the word transform here in our text. And then when it says Christ was made in the likeness of man, that word likeness gets a prefix, and it shows up here as our word conformity. So Jesus took on our form and was made like us so that one day we could have his form and be made like him. And we talk about that kind of trade in justification 
a lot, right? That, God, that he took on our sins so we could be made his righteousness. But Philippians 3.21 tells us not only that, but Christ took on the limitations and weaknesses of our fallen bodies so that one day we could have perfect glorified bodies like him. He was humbled for our glorification. Won't this be wonderful, sisters? Um, how often do you groan under the physical weaknesses and limitations that you have? I was just talking with someone. I'm ticking closer to 40, and I'm feeling it. Um, it's just not fun to get old. <laughs> um, and it's just this reminder that <clears throat> this body is going to give out on me. Um, but I have a body in heaven that won't. <clears throat> And how often do you rail against the stubborn sin that's still hanging on in your flesh? When we cross that finish line, when we have pressed on and reached the goal, we will get the prize of a body that's perfect, like Jesus' glorified body. There will be no more physical weakness, no more pain, no more sin. Isn't that an amazing prize? So how do we know that Jesus can do this or that he will do this? That he will come back and transform our bodies and take us home. Well, Paul actually takes us back to chapter 2 again. Do you remember in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow? That same power that's going to subject everything in creation, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, to bow the knee to Jesus and say, Jesus is Lord. That same power is the power that will change our bodies to share in his glory the power that, has, that he has to subject all things to himself. So, as you run your race, as you press on, this is the prize that you can get your eyes on, a home, a savior, and a perfect glorified body. You know, like Paul said, we don't have these things yet, but they can give us joy because we will surely have them someday. So while you run your race, don't look back, don't set your mind on earthly things, Follow those fellow runners who are on the right path because the finish line is real and this prize is well worth the effort. So with Paul, I would say, go get heaven because Christ went and got you. Will you pray with me? Father, we confess that too often our eyes are down. Too often we are setting our minds on earthly things we're busy with what lies behind, and we ask your forgiveness for that. Jesus, we marvel that you laid hold of us so that we could lay hold of this good prize. I pray that you'll fill our hearts with wonder and joy and longing for the amazing eternal goodness that's waiting for us at the finish line of our race. When we get tired, I pray that you'd use your word and your spirit to come alongside us and tell us to get our eyes up on this prize. And we say, um, with John, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.